Wine Work and Passion is brought to you by the Napa Valley Wine Academy, America's premier wine school and two-time winner of the WSET Global Wine Educator of the Year Award. You can find a course that's right for you at NapaValleyWineAcademy.com and use the code in our show notes for a special discount. Welcome, wine enthusiasts and job seekers. I'm your host, Karen Wetzel, and Wine, Work, and Passion is the podcast where we inspire you to make a career out of your passion for wine. Have you ever pictured yourself coming home at the end of your workday with mud-stained boots from working in a vineyard or red stains on your shirt after shoveling grapes at a winery? Well, if getting your hands dirty speaks to you, then strap your hat on for today's episode. Get ready to meet Nate Wise, He's the vice president of wine growing and a winemaker at the prestigious Silver Oak Winery and Toomey Cellars. I asked Nate to give you a sense of what it's like to work in the vineyard and in the wine cellar, from entry-level jobs to being the boss. So if you want to peek behind the curtain to learn about jobs that take wine from grapes to glass, this show is for you. As always, be sure to stay tuned until the end when Nate and I will offer up some things you can do right now to help you follow in his footsteps. Hi, Nate. Welcome to the show. Hi, Karen. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. I appreciate it. So can you tell our audience who you are and what you do in the wine industry? You got it. Uh, so I'm Nate Weiss is my name, and I'm, my title is Vice President of Wine Growing, and I work for the Duncan Family who owns Silver Oak, Toomey, Timeless, and Ovid Napa Valley. Nice. Boy, those are those are some slouchy names. No, I'm kidding. Those are very prestigious wineries, all of them here in, uh, in Napa. So if you're planning on coming out to Napa, make sure you put those on your list. And we'll talk more about those as we get through this. So um, I always like to tell the audience how we came to be on this podcast together today. Um, so I happened to be up at Don Giovanni's with some friends, some gal pals, having a little cocktail, sitting at the bar, <laughs> and you and your buddy were having a little happy hour cocktail sitting next to us, and I was eavesdropping on your conversation and uh, sort of listening in. I heard Vineyard, I heard some other things, and Brian is uh, works for a barrel-making company, and I was eavesdropping on both of you, and I just so happened to had been wanting to have a vineyard manager on the show, and boy, did I pounce. Next thing you know, you and I are yakking away, and you sounded like a fun guy, full of information. I was so excited that you wanted to be on the show. So you solved a problem. I didn't have to keep looking, <laughs> and I'm really appreciative that you're here. Isn't that kind of a classic Napa Valley story that uh, over a glass of wine at Don Giovanni, that's how we come to be. Right. I, I, you know, I've met a lot of winemakers and winery owners and educators. It's just sitting at the bar, chatting it up. <laughs> so let's get to know you a little bit. Can you tell us a bit about your background, how you came to, how you started off your, you know, your adult life and how you came to be in the industry? Sure. So uh, my family is in the wine business. We're not winery owners or, or anything like that, but my father came to the Valley in the late 60s, early 70s, because he was intrigued by the whole idea of the wine business. He he had been studying mycology at UC Berkeley and was sort of fascinated that there was actually a thing he could do with that 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 was making wine, right? It was, uh, that was kind of blew his mind at the time. 
So I grew up in St. Helena. I grew up around the wine business. And, you know, when you grow up in the Napa Valley, all you really want to do at first is get out. So uh, I had no intention of getting into the wine business. I went off to UC Santa Barbara. I, I don't know that I really had an intention of doing anything at that point. But at some point, it becomes fairly obvious that you're going to have to get a job, work for a living. And I really found myself... Uh, this was the early days of the internet. I, sent, I found myself in the, the school library sort of researching the viticulture and enology program at UC Davis, you know, thinking that might be a really interesting uh, place to take my interest in science and everything that I did at UCSB. I was, I was a biopsychology slash neuroscience major. So um, a lot of chemistry, physics, biology, the, the whole nine yards, basically, the, all the stuff that leads into the viticulture and enology program at UC Davis, which was quite advantageous for me. Um, so basically, once I finished uh, my, my undergrad coursework, I came back up to the valley and, and I worked a harvest and, and that was it. I was done. I was in this business for life and still to this point, I've never done anything else. Uh, in the meantime, I decided to go back to school uh, I'm, I'm kind of a, I'm a learner. I like to be taught things. I like to sort of go through the, the official rigmarole of education. So I figured if I was going to do this for real as a professional, I wanted to get a degree in viticulture and technology from Davis. So I went back and got a master's degree there. And then uh, as I went through my career, I sort of, uh, I found myself learning that I didn't know a lot. Uh, and most of that had to do with kind of the business side of the wine business. So I ended up going back to school again, uh, much to the chagrin of my wife, and getting an, an MBA in, in wine business from Sonoma State. Wow. Well, there's a couple of things you said. So you have a fascinating background, and a couple of things you said that caught my attention. Well, it all caught my attention. But um, you mentioned when you were you know, just out of high school, everybody, at that stage of people's lives, they all want to get out of Napa. <laughs> and, and the audience might think that sounds funny, but you, know, you have to remember... Napa, and especially, you know, 20 years ago, Napa is a farming community and it's a long, skinny valley and there's one sort of downtown hub, but it's not, it's, it's, our nightlife is getting better, but it's not, it's really a quiet town. Like if you're in the North part of the valley and I was just talking to my niece, she's coming out for a visit and she's not sure where she wants to stay. And she's a young girl. I said, you want to stay downtown only because the streets roll up at eight o'clock up North Valley, right? So if you were up in St. Helena, it was quiet. It's a quiet town. But I think all of us, as we get more interested in wine, Napa has become quite the destination for vacationers, but also for living. I mean, I moved here eight years ago and it's a dream come true. You know, it's not inexpensive, but it's not as expensive as San Francisco, that's for sure. Anyway, so that caught my attention. The other thing is about your dad that he found out that what he was doing for a living could find its way into the wine industry, that he could take just sort of a normal job and make it a wine job or move into the wine industry. And I tell, I tell my students, my coaching clients that all the time, um, you have skills that, you know, every, the wine industry needs lawyers, they need accountants, they need uh, IT people, even if you're not necessarily a wine guy, or a wine gal, you can find your way into the industry. It's an, it's, it's production like any, like anything else. Um, and the other thing is you talked about, you know, you went to school for a long time, you learned about chemistry and biology, and then you went back and got your analogy degree. 
but you didn't have the business degree. And it's important that people who are interested in getting into the wine industry, the wine business is it's a business. <laughs> you know, it's like becoming a chef. You know, back in the day, a chef was, you know, art at all costs. You know, I'm going to make my beautiful artistic food. And now if you want to be a famous or a, a successful chef, you have to know the business side of it too. And wine is very much the same way. It's not enough to be, you know, a rock star winemaker if you can't control your cost, right? Yeah, you know, and, and it really dovetails into the whole idea of sustainability, which is a passion of mine and, and something that Silver Oak and the Duncan family are really focused on. And one of the pillars of that sort of concept is that in order to be sustainable, you have to be profitable. You know, you can... You can do all the good in the world in terms of your practices and the way you, uh, you know, treat your employees and engage with them. But if you can't keep doing it, it doesn't really do a whole lot of good. So, so we need to figure out how to be successful at doing these things. Yeah, because that success leads to supporting the community more, to employing more people, which puts tax dollars into the community coffers. You know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of motivation. You're right that, you know, some people think if you're going to be sustainable, you know, it's all about the environment and, and, and you don't, and the business is a bad thing, right? It's, it's not a bad, it's a necessity in order to be successful and continue that sustainable path. So I'm glad you brought that up. That's very cool. Tell us a little bit about, uh, the wineries that you represent. You said Silver Oak and Toomey. The other two, I didn't know. What are the other two? Uh, well, so, so Silver Oak's kind of the, the one that's been around the longest and the one everybody knows. So this is our 50th anniversary. We were founded in 1972. Uh, Toomey, they started in 1999. And that was kind of because Silver Oak only made Cabernet. Uh, Toomey was the way to do explore other varieties, do different things, kind of almost exactly the opposite of Silver Oak in that we can we can do whatever we want, anything that sort of catches our fancy. Um, Abed was a, is a really interesting part of the family. Uh, so Abed Napa Valley is up on Pritchard Hill, and it was founded by uh, another couple in 2005. And in 2017, uh, the Duncan family uh, uh, purchased Abed. So they're now part of the Duncan family portfolio. And they're the only one of the brands that, that the Duncan family did not start themselves. Um, but Ovid's very, it's a very small winery. It's a very small estate. It's 15 acres planted right now. Make a few thousand cases of wine, you know, very, very high-end uh, mailing list allocation sort of system. Mm -hmm. The last one is Timeless Napa Valley, which was a brand we started a couple of years ago. It's a single vineyard Bordeaux red from our biggest estate vineyard in Napa Valley. And it's it's essentially an ode to Ray Duncan, who founded Silver Oak, who passed away in 2015. So this was kind of a, you know, we got to do something for Ray and and it ended up becoming its own its own brand. But it's, a, again, kind of a smaller production uh, thing we do for for fun, mostly, and, and to honor Ray, but uh, also, also uh, of course, to, to, to get out there and, and sell. Right. Now, is that so that doesn't have its own freestanding winery or anything, right? That's what is it made at Silver Oak, I'm guessing? Yeah, we make that wine at the Oakville facility. We, and we age the wine actually in our Calistoga winery. At, okay. Can you purchase the wine at the Silver Oak tasting room? Oh, we, can, we, we love to sell wine. Yes. Can, <laughs> like. That was a dumb question. <laughs> I forgot where I was for a minute. 
Oh my gosh, that's so awesome! And so we know how you how you kind of got there. Uh, talk. I know when I was doing my research on you, there's really a, a great bio on you in uh, on the website on the Silver Oak website, and I was fascinated. It seems like you've worn a lot of different hats there. Can you talk a little bit about your progression? You know, maybe even from the time you started in wineries doesn't necessarily have to start with Silver Oak, but how you ended up as a vice president. Yeah, so I, I cut my teeth. My background's really as a winemaker, uh, and I started where just about uh, everybody starts that you talk to, probably, which was uh, as a, as an intern in the cellar, you know, dragging hoses and, and cleaning stuff. That was a large part of my job was cleaning stuff. Uh, but after getting out of Davis, uh, my first my first position, my first like real adult job, I got a business card and everything was at uh, wow. AQ. yeah. Uh, well, that, I felt like I'd made it, man. I had a business card. <laughs> Uh, it was at Etude Wines in Carneros. I was a cellar master there. Uh, and then from there, uh, was hired by James Hall of Patson Hall to be his assistant winemaker at Patson Hall. Mm-hmm. And then kind of my, my first real big break in the wine industry came uh, in 2008 when the uh, Antonori family hired me to be their winemaker at Antonori. Wow. So that was, that was kind of a big jump. And I think if we're, you know, since we're talking about careers, that's often the hard one is going from assistant winemaker, associate winemaker to, you know, f- sort of full blown winemaker status, I guess. Right. Right. And, uh, I, you know, that was really um, being in the right place at the right time. But I'm, I'm a big believer that, you know, luck is kind of where opportunity and preparation intersect. Right. So uh, we, we, we knew the Antonori's well. We had been buying Chardonnay grapes there. Uh, we'd made a little bit of wine for them as, as a custom crush deal. So they'd actually kind of tried me out for a couple of years. And, right. And, <laughs> Kicked the tires. <laughs> yeah. I was very fortunate that they decided that they wanted to, to hire me. And uh, uh, so from there, I spent six years as their winemaker. And then kind of the really interesting stuff starts. So I, I uh, uh, had sort of decided it was time to move on and, and figure out what the next steps were for me in my career. And I found out through a friend that the Duncans were going to be hiring a, a replacement for Daniel Barron. So one of the things about Silver Oak is they've only really kind of had three winemakers in their 50 years. So Justin wow. was the first. Uh, Daniel Barron spent 23 years as kind of the, the figurehead in the production department. And he was going to retire at the end of 2016. And they, they, uh, they have this great philosophy and this great tradition of having people overlap. So for for a lot of different positions of importance, they'll have people work together for a period of time before uh, one person sort of steps away and another person steps in. Right. Most recently, we just did that with our CFO as well. Oh, wow. Okay. So Daniel and I worked together for three years. They hired me as the winemaker for Silver Oak in 2014. And uh, when he retired, I became the director of winemaking, uh, which which here actually winemaking and grape growing both kind of float together in, in the same department. Right. And then uh, as we've kind of grown and added, added Ovid, added new brands, added new vineyards, um, that sort of grew into a vice president role. Uh, and they decided, they said, well, what do you want to call? What do you want to be called? I said, I don't really care what you call me. <laughs> they said, <laughs> well, call you know, me, don't call me late for dinner, right? Exactly. Yeah, yeah. And they said, well, you know, winemaking is not really what you do because you, you are involved in the grape growing too. Uh, let's call it wine growing. I said, hey, sure, love it. Let's do it. <laughs> that's that's how that came to be. And so somebody else now is director of wine making. 
We have a number of winemakers and we have a number of directors as well. Uh, okay. It was a, it was an interesting uh, move as a company too. We really wanted to uh, create some some additional levels. You know, we had directors that were part of our executive team, and we sort of said, like, look, we need to open up some space, kind of in between in between um, some of these levels, in order to help people grow and and uh, um, take on new responsibilities. You know, basically basically learn to to lead the rest of the company. That's so awesome to hear. You know, that's that's really one of the keys when people are considering what type of position or what who to go work for. You know, look at look at their plan, their potential plan for you and look at the people inside the company that have moved up and moved on. And that sometimes you have to that's a can often be a bigger consideration than the salary because there's a future there. And in today's world, that's kind of hard to find. So I think that that's really inspiring to know, you know, to know that there's a great winery system here, group here in Napa that really has that going for them. It's very, very important. Um, and this is why when sometimes people say, well, you know, that's, that's a big, that's a bigger winery. We want the little boutique guys. Sounds great. But when it comes to employment, you know, those little boutique guys pretty much do everything themselves. <laughs> There's not a lot of, you know, they wear a lot of hats. So, so it's great to know that there is, that this is happening here um, in the Valley. So, so currently your role is like we said, you know, VP of wine growing. So tell us about the sort of the chain of command. Like what are the teams, what kind of teams do you oversee and what kind of roles are within those teams and maybe what the requirements are for some of those roles. And I'm kind of hoping to cover, you know, people who are entry level to people who have, you know, big college degrees. So can you give us an idea of who works under you? Yeah, let's, we can start with grape growing. So, uh, you know, I, I kind of break down our grape growing departments, so to speak, into a few different um, operational goals. Well, you know, one is vineyard managers. So people that are, actively farming the vineyards and overseeing the the either our own crews or farm labor contractors or vineyard management companies and the day-to-day activities of doing that we have um and within those we have depending on the size of the individual crew we have vineyard supervisors vineyard foremen uh you know vineyard managers for us will typically have a college degree of some sort in in ag of some type um but supervisors and foremen, uh, you, know, you know, their their education levels vary uh, to, from from high school to AA degrees, uh, and some may have bachelor's degrees uh, in, in certain spots. Okay. Uh, then we have grower relations, which is a really interesting part of, of uh, you know a winery like us. So we don't grow all of the fruit that we use. We probably grow about seventy percent, and so the other thirty percent comes from growers. And so there's a a facet of, of most winers' business, which is kind of contractual work with those growers, interacting with those growers, um, you know, in many ways being their psychologist and, and uh, talking them off a ledge when things are going crazy during harvest. Right. Uh, and also, you know, making sure that our team is getting feedback from them about, about uh, communication issues or things like that. And so that's that's an interesting sort of facet of the business that covers everything from these you know, very in-depth contracts that we have to to basically just talking to people and and uh, connecting with them. Um, right. 
and that usually will have somebody with a bachelor's degree in that sort of role uh, working in that. And then we have the technical side, which is sort of data collection. Uh, we have um, many different things that we collect data on all year long, all, you know, all sorts of technology that we use, uh, some that's very advanced and some that's not very advanced at all. You know, taking pruning weights with a, a fish scale, you know, is kind of the, the classic uh, uh, old fashioned technology. Uh, and, you know, there's there's some interesting certifications there. So so I'm thinking of our viticulturist who heads up a lot of our technical uh, data collection. And, and she has a bachelor's degree from Davis, but she also has a PCA license, which is a, a totally sort of different thing, which I think is actually a, a really cool certification to have uh, because she can make spray recommendations. She can do things like that, um, whereas people without PCA licenses can't. So when you're talking about data collection, you're talking about, you know, weight of the grapes, you're talking about bricks, sugar measurements, acidity measurements. It's a lot. There's a, um, some lab work involved in that, correct? Yeah, typically that'll actually happen in the wineries. The the data collection in the vineyards are things like pruning weights, um, oh. looking at sticky traps this time of year. We're starting to measure shoot growth this time of year. We get into irrigation measurements later in the year and then everybody's favorite crop estimation because there's there's not a lot of winning in that in that role all right now you said sticky mats can you tell the audience what that oh, is just just basically sticky traps for bugs and and uh identifying what sort of uh flying insects we have around and and whether they're a problem or whether they're just uh you know part of the local fauna i want to go back to the vineyard managers. Uh, first of all, so so they do the farming and they oversee the teams that do the farming. And you mentioned you've got managers and then you've got foremen and supervisors. Are all these people full-time with Silver Oak? Yeah, they are. They are. Okay, perfect. And then under them, the guys who are actually doing the picking, is that, uh, do you have empl- full-time employees that do that? Or um, do you pull from other teams within your organization? How much of your harvest is, well, first of all, how many acres do you guys farm yourselves? We farm about 650. Oh, okay. Wow. That's a lot of acres. Okay. And then, so do you, how much of your labor for harvest, for instance, or pruning season is contracted to like the I guess you call them temp agencies or the the ag agencies that that produce people. How many are are? What's your percentage breakdown? It's a it's a complicated answer because it, depending on geography, in some cases we run our own crews, and in some cases we entirely depend on. So it's basically, basically it's either one hundred percent or zero percent. I would say. It's, okay, it's gotcha. not <laughs> yeah, it wasn't really a trick question. I I just I think people have the impression. Uh, around the country that talk, think about Napa, that when it comes to harvest, that every person picking grapes is is a migrant worker that isn't that's going to go on to something else. And in some cases, the crews do. You know, they make pick grapes today and tomatoes tomorrow. But more and more, I'm finding talking with the different wineries here that they're really focusing more on trying to have their own employees um, because you you know it's you're hand harvesting. You're, you need eyes on the grapes and you need eyes that know what they're looking at, right? And uh, um, so I, I find that 
the contract is important. You still have to have that that labor because you know everything. Obviously, harvest comes and we need lots of bodies, and then we don't need them the rest of the year. Um, but anyway, just was curious about that. And I also mm-hmm. want to talk about you know the concept of grower of grower relations and of buying fruit. That's another thing I don't really think a lot of people think about. They they come here to Napa, they drive up and down Highway 29, and they see a beautiful building with a bunch of vineyards around it. And they think, oh, that's all their acreage. And in some cases, it's really not. It could be, you know, we have a lot of old school growers that have owned the land forever. Um, and they continue to farm and they sell their grapes to very prestigious companies like Silver Oak and Toomey. And it's not frowned upon here. People think, oh, it has to be estate grown, but that's really not reality. And some of these growers are multi-generational growers. And what is your relationship with some of your, some of the growers that you buy from? How much input um, do you get into their farming methods or their harvest time or, you know, pruning or whatever? How much input do you, do you get to give? Yeah, you know, it's, it's an interesting one as well. And, and we work with growers, everyone from people that uh, sell us every grape that they grow, uh, mm-hmm. work with some people who have their own wineries and they make some of their wine from some of their own fruit and they sell us the rest um, right. and and kind of everything in between. So we we do have um, we, we have one kind of rule, which is like, look, when we're when we're giving inputs the vineyard's yours. You know the vineyard better than us. You're out there every single day. We might visit on a weekly basis, but but we don't know it as well as you do. So we, you know, we're happy to talk to you and give you input. But when it comes to really big picture decisions that are going to greatly impact your bottom line, you know, we're going to let you. We're going to defer to your judgment. And and uh, if we have a long-standing relationship with one another, which most of our growers we do have a very long-standing relationship. It means you, you know what you're doing and you're pretty good at it. We don't really want to, you know, come in and, and tell you exactly what you need to do. Now, at the same time, we want to talk about how we might things that we see that might improve quality, uh, some ways to, to continue to strengthen that relationship, because the better the wine, the more the more I'm going to want to continue to buy the grapes. Uh, so we and, and we have a. Uh, we have some cases, you know, especially with like Tumi, where we have some far, far flung growers, you know, saying Gonzalez, we work in the Santa Lucia Highlands. We just don't we don't get there as often as we get to the, right. uh, the vineyards that are just right around here. And so those are very trust based relationships. Um, yeah, uh, that's really important. Yeah, good. Well, thanks for explaining that. I, I you know, I always try to bring some clarity to you know, there's the fantasy of, of making wine and then there's the reality of it. And I think it's helpful for, for people to know, to know all that. So you also have, you know, as you said, you were a director of winemaking, you know, you're very involved in winemaking. What do you like better, the grape growing or the winemaking? <laughs> I, I find, uh, you know, again, my background is as a winemaker, um, and so actually, uh, typically winemakers are very interested in viticulture, um, even if they're not quite as, as uh, knowledgeable about it necessarily. So it's not like something new to learn. Um, I, I do find it very interesting. There's a lot, of, uh, a lot of the really interesting technological advancements that are being made. A lot of the really big decisions that are being made are being done, being done in the vineyard rather than the winery. Um, I, I feel very comfortable in the winery. I still am kind of finding my feet in terms of working with the viticultural staff 
and uh, uh, really helping having them help me understand what I'm looking at, having them help me learn. Uh, so that's that's really exciting for me is I feel like I'm getting better and better and better with them every year. Um, but it's hard to say which one I like more. Yeah. I, I like it you can't all. have one without the other. That's for sure. <laughs> I kind of love everything that I do in my job, which uh, that's part of the reason I love uh, this particular position is, is from a day, from one day to the next, I could be doing anything at all. Uh, and I mean, anything at all. And, and you never quite know where it's going to go each day. Right. That's so awesome. It's, isn't it? It's wonderful to love what you do every day. And, and that's why people I think want to, you know, enter the wine industry is they have this idea that it's going to be, you know, great every day. And and to be honest, it kind of is. <laughs> I mean, you know, obviously there's challenges and, and issues with any job. There's responsibilities, there's long hours, um, but it's very rewarding. And it's really, I always say, it's not really just a career, it's a lifestyle. And once you're in it, I don't know too many people that, you know, leave wine to go sell soup. <laughs> Not yeah, 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 it it totally is. In the like, let's let's not sugarcoat it. I have the days I come in and I just want to bang my head against a brick wall. Um, right. But I think the beauty of the diversity of what I do is that uh, while one day I may be doing something that I'm just going, oh my god, I can't believe I'm spending all day on this. Uh, right. Usually the next day I'm doing something else, so it's not the same thing every single day. Um, yeah. I would imagine, and and tell me if I'm wrong, but I would imagine that you know, as as a winemaker you know, you control everything that's happening. You make the decisions, you decide what to do with the wine, how to process the grapes, how to, when you're, how long you're going to age them, what kind of barrel you're going to put them in, all those decisions. Um, once the grapes come in, it's all about making the right decisions. Um, but in the vineyard, it seems to me that you are really not in control. You, mother nature is <laughs> mother nature, climate change, fire season. I mean, you have a lot of, you're, you're slaying a lot of dragons out there, I think. Well, you, so you would do really well uh, at this then. Yeah. I think that's the first thing you need to learn to acknowledge. And, and it, it takes a lot of humility to say like, look, man, we're, we're responding to what happens each and every day out, out there. And these are big picture forces on us. And um, we don't always know what's going to happen. You, you know, we have weather forecasts and things like that, but, but you know, they're, you, you know how reliable weather forecasting is for one. Yeah. <laughs> right. And these things pop up and we just have to deal with them. So it's, it's uh, in a way you kind of, it's very much like uh, um what Mike Tyson said that everybody's got a plan until they get punched in the face. Right. And, and <laughs> I never heard that. That's a great line though. You go into the farm, the farming season, you go into the growing season with a plan. You, you know, we have farm plans, but they usually last about a month before right. we're sort of responding to what the individual season's given us. And, and you know, like for example, right now um, with bud break happening, we haven't really had a whole lot of rain since November, December. We're, this is uh, whatever plan we had that was based on on normal rainfall is now completely out the window. Yeah, we started off so good in November and December. It was like, oh, this is going to be the year, right? And then what have we not had hardly any rain since, what, January 11th, I think. And yeah, we had a little bit of rain the other day for a few hours, but it wasn't the kind of rain that changes the trajectory of what's happening in our, in our vineyards. 
Yeah, my favorite saying is, every time we make a plan, God laughs. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Same kind of thing, right? Yeah. yeah. And, and you know, a lot of the decisions, the decisions in the winery are kind of, date. You're, okay, this vintage, this tub of grapes is going to be processed in this way. Where in the vineyard, a lot of the decisions that you're making, you know, row direction or trellising systems or density or even height of the, of the, of the trellising, those are long-term decisions. I mean, you know, you're not going to replant that vineyard for 25 or 30 years, maybe if, if then. So whatever decision you make, you or your predecessor is going to be stuck with it for a long time, it seems. Well, you know that, and I think that takes some perspective and some hum- humility as well, because we've probably plant we've probably replanted about 150 to 200 acres over the last nine or ten years. Yeah. And every time we do it, you know, we go in with the best of intentions. We have new ideas. Uh, we have new new tools to help us kind of figure out how we should design vineyards, what rootstocks we should choose, uh, but. Ultimately, every time we finish, we're always standing there as a group and we laugh and go, boy, 20 years from now, the people that take over for us are going to stand there and go, what are these idiots? What were these idiots thinking when they did this? Sort of like when you walk into a house that has avocado green stove and refrigerator that was really, really trendy 25 years ago. And now it's like, ooh, what were they thinking? They're going to love, they're going to love this wallpaper. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Everybody's going to love it. No, that's that's very true. Well, while we're talking about the vineyard, and this isn't necessarily job focused, and I try not to get too far off the beaten track, but something I know is on everybody's mind is, can you talk about, and I get this question a lot, can you talk about climate change in the vineyard and what we're what we're learning, what we're doing to to mitigate the effects of it or to embrace it? Talk about that a bit. Yeah, you know, climate change. I, I think there's two there's two facets to it as a business and as a an ag uh, an agricultural business. Uh, you know, one is taking steps to reduce emissions and and try to nip it or at least control it to the best that we can. Try to slow it down, I guess. Uh, so we have a lot of pieces on that end. Uh, but then the other the other end is adapting to it and and what are, what can, what can we do going forward under the assumption uh, that we are facing climate change. And, and when we say climate change, we mostly what I mean is, uh, you know, typically increases in temperature, but it can be just bigger swings in extreme weather either way, right. uh, drier and um, also more extreme in the sense that instead of getting 10 inches of rain in a month over 30 days, we get 10 inches of rain over three days, uh, which seems to be more the norm these days. Um, so extreme weather, heats, less rainfall, th- those are really the things that we're dealing with. And so, you know, I think you hit the nail on the head in terms of uh, vineyard design. So as you get the chance to plant vineyards, you can certainly take that into account. And, and quite honestly, I think if you're not taking it into account, you're, you're missing the bus to some extent. Uh, yeah, it's at your own peril. Yeah. So trellising decisions, uh, training decisions, um, row directions, a big one. Uh, one of the things that we're working very hard on is, is how to mitigate uh, heat events. So heat waves and not just heat itself. Actually, vines are pretty good at dealing with heat. If it's 110 degrees out and, and it's you know 35% relative humidity, they can handle that. They do pretty well. It's when they get into these 110 degrees and 8% relative humidity days that we're, we're, we get pretty worried about those. 
And we have those here in, in Napa. I remember being at a concert up at Robert Mondavi like two years ago, and it was, I don't know, it was well into the hundreds, 105. And I looked at my phone and it was, it was like 7% humidity. I mean, people say, well, it's a dry heat. I got news for you. (laughs) You're standing in the sun, listening to a concert. It's hot. Yeah. And the vines, the vines have no idea what to do with that. So, yeah. so looking we don't at get they, a lot of humidity here, we get a little bit of fog in the morning, but I mean, it's, I noticed when I moved here coming from Ohio, which is, has a lot of humidity, especially in the summer, you know, my hair is dry, my skin's dry, my eyes are dry, you know, that people don't realize we're not quite Arizona dry, but we're very dry. I mean, it doesn't, you don't really feel hot here when it's in the eighties, you got to get in the nineties before you're sweating. And that's because it's such low humidity usually. Yeah. Yeah, so uh, you know, it, making water go a little bit further is another important thing with climate change. So there's a, a lot of different strategies for that, both understanding the way the vines interacting with the environment, and then making sure that that water use is really, really efficient. Um, you know, we're, we're um, soil health is a really big kind of factor in this. Something that we're very focused on because. Healthy soils not only help sequester carbon and are, are reducing emissions, but uh, they also hold more water. They have higher water holding capacity. They're, they have more nutrition available because we, we have a lot of these these there's uh, these dominoes that fall as the climate changes and we get less so less water less soil moisture early in the season means there's less nitrogen mineralization, which means there's less available to the plants. Um, so we, we have to basically end up you know, adding, adding nitrogen where we think it's needed to the plants. And, and it, it, there's all these things that kind of add up on top of each other. So, um, right. There's, there's also kind of the unknown unknowns. And so like, how is pest pressure going to change as we go into a changing climate? I, right. I don't know. I don't I have no idea. Yeah. We, as human beings, you know, we are all of a sudden very aware of viruses and, and different things that, you know, sort of uh, plagues that can happen, but we've been dealing with that with vineyards, you know, for a lot from, you know, well, forever, but phylloxera was a big one. And now we've got the, the, you know, Pearson's disease and the sharpshooter problem. And that's why you have all those sticky papers in the vineyard, you know, looking to see what bugs are coming your way. And it's yeah. a challenge. You know, people come, I love people come out here in the fall and they see all those beautiful red leaves, those dark burgundy leaves all over the vine. I'm like, no, that's not good. We don't want that. <laughs> that's, it looks beautiful in a picture, but it is not healthy. One of our one of our vineyard managers mentioned that in a company meeting recently, and it sort of blew everybody's mind. Uh, they they didn't realize that either. But yeah, virus yeah. virus and pathogen expression, when the vines under more stress, they tend to show up more. We're seeing these things show up in, in much bigger droves than we used to because of this this stressful environment, abiotic stress. Right. And, and so for people listening, who they're like, well, I thought we were going to talk about jobs, but keep this in mind. You know, if you have a uh, you know, a pension for biology and chemistry and, and even um, a bit of an interest in medicine, you can translate that into the world of wine because some of those things really do apply. I mean, I'm not saying a doctor would necessarily want to come and, you know, work in labs in the wine business, but I know I when I teach WSET, I've had a lot of doctors in my class wanting to know what they're going to do in their next phase. So those could be pretty interesting things as well. So what, aside from climate change, um, we talked about a couple of other, you and I privately talked about a couple of other big challenges that you see 
Um, can you can you talk about those a bit? Well, we've got um, labor has been a, a very challenging thing for everybody over the last few years, and and even before the pandemic, it was it could be very difficult to fill roles, and it's only it's only getting worse. Um, so that that is something we're thinking about quite a bit, and and that can lead to a lot of interesting developments and innovations, right? Right. Yeah. Hand, these beautiful harvesters now that have optic sorters, that's all driven by labor shortage. Where is the labor shortage coming from? Where, where are your, where are the, the employees going if they're not in wine now? You know, it's, it's a good question. I'm not entirely always sure. Um, and, and our labor shortage is not just for, for field workers or entry level people. We have labor shortages for all sorts of positions where we just can't right. find people uh, uh, to fill certain roles, and we, we struggle with with uh, filling them every single year. Yeah, is it true? I hear this frequently. Is it? It's, but I don't know if it's fact. Is it true that the cannabis industry is cannibalizing some of our labor? Do you know? Well, that's that has always been an issue uh, long before cannabis was legal. Uh, and in fact, I think it used to be worse because uh, when people were being paid under the table. Uh, they would be paid a whole lot more than they're being paid now that it's all out from behind the curtain. Right, right. Well, you mentioned the labor shortage and just sort of anecdotally, I tried to make an appointment to get a pedicure the other day here in Napa. It's a two month, my husband gave me a gift certificate for Christmas. It's a two month wait because they have no technicians. Mm -hmm. And she was so apologetic. I'm like, are you kidding? Like, I have to go somewhere else. I can't wait that long. (laughs) And she goes, I know, I would take you in a minute. I just... I have one person in training. I'll call you when they come out of training. But every, it seems like every industry, how many restaurants have we seen close here in Napa? In fact, Grand Electrica just posted on Facebook. It's the labor shortage that drove them out. It's it's crazy. But yeah, so we are definitely not, you, everybody thinks, oh, everybody wants to work in wine. But we have the same struggles that every everybody else does. If somebody wanted to work, in the vineyard or in the winery, we talk, let's talk about internships because you started that way and internship or slash entry level position. Cause they're kind of one and the same, I would guess. Um, what is it like? And, and maybe talk about vineyard and winery. What's it like to work a day in a winery or in a vineyard? Like your starting day, if you have no degree, you you're just going to start there. What, what would a day be like? Well, so so for sort of our vineyard crews, uh, we have you know a cadre of probably fifteen regular full time employees, somewhere between fifteen and twenty, and then we have we hire seasonal people throughout the year that come in, and and as we get busier and busier in the summer and into the fall, the, the, that crew grows to like forty, and so if you're working with one of those crews. Uh, you know, typically we'll, we'll, there'll be some suckering, basically manipulating the vines so suckering, canopy management, things like that, uh, moving into the hand harvest and then uh, sort of wrapping, wrapping up after the harvest with various projects. Uh, there might be some development work of, of staking and, and laying out vineyards, things like that. And then we have, uh, you know, in the technical side, we have technical interns that do uh, collect this data, so they're out there measuring shoots. Um, they're they're as the grapes start to uh, set and then come on, you know, uh, through verasion, they'll start to sample and and take those samples to the winery. They're taking uh, uh, plant water status measurements with a variety of different tools, and th- those jobs are really f- uh, they're kind of cool because I, I they're not for everybody. So there's a lot of driving, there's a lot of walking by yourself. 
If you're into podcasts like this one, if you're into that sort of thing, I think they're great. You know, I think we have people that love to just kind of basically soak in information all day long because they're all by themselves going from vineyard to vineyard doing these things. Right. And then there's there's people that are probably a little bit more extroverted that might they might hate this job with all their all their hearts, right? Right. Uh, and then you know in the winery the internships are generally focused around the fall, so that's our of course our busy season, and they they start out with a lot of training, uh, you know, safety first and foremost, and then and then kind of a a little primer on how to work in a winery well, you know, how to use this equipment, how to use that equipment, uh, maybe get your forklift certified. Uh, even if we do that, you probably won't be stacking our, our full barrels uh, anytime soon, but but you will be driving the forklift around. And then in the fall, it just becomes, you know, somewhat chaotic. It's sort of receiving fruits, helping to process it, doing all sorts of different things, filling barrels, digging out tanks, running presses. Um, it's, it's, uh, it's kind of like a drinking from the fire hose introduction to wine production. Right. And, and both of these, both in the vineyard and the winery, they're pretty physical jobs. I mean, for the most part, except for the one guy who gets to walk around by himself. But other than that, you know, like you said, you started off cleaning and dragging hoses for, you know, because we, we move wine a lot from a tank to a barrel or a tank to a tank or a barrel to a barrel. So there's a lot of moving wine around and, and you don't necessarily have to have an analogy degree to, to know to do that. You have somebody saying, you know, stick this hose in that barrel and move it over here. So you have uh, some good guidance. But I always think people, again, have this idea of what it would be like to work in a winery. And, you know, it, it's, it's, not as romantic, but it's it's also a great job. I will say most of the guys who I know, guys and gals who work in the winery or in the vineyard, they don't really drink a lot of wine. They tend to drink a lot of beer. Am I right about that? Yeah, there's, a, there's the old saying, right? It takes a lot of beer to make good wine. That's right. I know, believe I, that. I wouldn't uh, I wouldn't discount the the folks that that walk through the vineyards because uh, one thing, one of the reasons this is such a great area for growing grapes and making wine is that. We don't have a whole lot of flat land, so there's a lot of up and down hills. And, oh, that's true. Yeah, I think our our vit techs, you know, if, I think if they were wearing a Fitbit or something, I wouldn't be shocked if they walked, you know, four or five, six miles a day. God, I should have gotten that job a few years ago. <laughs> oh, well, that's great. Okay, so um, what is your favorite thing about viticulture? What's your what's the thing that you love the most? There was something in your bio that talked about what you love. What do you love about it? About viticulture? Uh-huh. Um, well, you know, what I love about the industry in general is that uh, they kind of you come in and they say, well, uh, welcome to the wine industry. You know, we, we want you to play with some heavy equipment, you know, go drive these tractors, drive these forklifts, drive these trucks. And it's like, oh, man, I should be I should be paying you for this. Right. Right. A dream come true. <laughs> and then the other thing is, you know, it's uh, only because I travel uh, and act as kind of an ambassador at times, too. Uh, I do own two suits. Uh, if I did not do that for a living, I probably wouldn't own zero suits. And I have, I think, two or three ties uh, one pair of dress shoes, you know, it's, it's, uh, it, I'm wearing a collared shirt to be the, the podcast listeners won't see it, but I am wearing a collared shirt today, which is actually somewhat rare as well. Um, I was a little surprised. <laughs> yeah. It's, I, you know, it's a very, very casual industry and it's very physical. And I spend a lot of time outside, uh, hiking around, looking at this, looking at that. I mean, it, it's, um, 
I don't know if I could ever go back and work in a cubicle. Uh, yeah, I think you're right. It's it's cerebral in the that in the sense that you have to know what you're doing and you have to make decisions and choices. But it kind of combines that. It's outdoors. It's uh, like you say, very physical. I think that's that's kind of a cool thing. Um, I think the, uh, what I enjoy about the cerebral part is that, and I, I try to get this home with our team all the time is there are no right and wrong answers in growing grapes and making wine. We are always guessing. Now we can be making educated guesses, but you never know the outcome when you make a decision. And so it takes both the, it, it, it takes the perspective to look back and say, okay, well, what was that a good decision or a bad decision? And if it was a bad one, how could we have made it better? Uh, but also the humility to do that and say, like, you know, we go back, let's go back and judge ourselves. And, you know, that picking call, we totally blew that picking call. That was a bad call. Like, wh- why and how can we improve that next year? Right. Yeah. Let's not repeat it. Exactly. So can you tell our listeners how they could find out about careers, entry level or otherwise, um, at Silver Oak or Toomey? Is there a, is there a place they can go? There is. Uh, if you go to silveroakertumi.com, uh, there there should be a tab somewhere that says careers. Okay. Uh, and right now we are we're looking for at least one seller person, uh, maybe maybe two. Right. We're looking for interns. We're looking for people to come in and work um, hospitality or as chefs on call. I mean, we we have plenty plenty of uh, potential work if you're interested. Yeah, it's not all just winemaking and viticulture. It's like you say, it's hospitality, tasting room people, you know, chefs and servers and all that, all that good stuff too. Uh, marketing people, that. I'm sure. Now, if they apply through Silver Oak, would they be considered at Toomey? Do you think? Uh, absolutely, for production roles, totally. So they, yeah. yeah, so they really only have to apply in one place, and and then they'll 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 end up wherever yeah. wherever there's openings the right opening for them that's good to know i will put uh the the two websites in the show notes so for those of you listening if you didn't jot it down um you can also just do a, a google search but i'll go ahead and throw it in the show notes for you guys so all right so i'm sure there's people listening that are inspired by our conversation i hope so anyway that's the goal um if somebody uh decides hey i'd like to work in a winery or a vineyard can you, whether it's you know Silver Oak and Toomey or somewhere in, in their area, if they happen to live outside of Napa, um, what are a couple of things that they can do that they can do or start doing now to improve their chances of getting hired? Well, you know, I think uh, one thing when we're going through the hiring process that I'm always surprised by or often surprised by is when people come in to talk to us and interview and. They don't know anything about us or our history. And I'm not talking about me. I'm talking about Silver Oak or Toomey or right. whomever. Uh, they don't know what wines we make. They don't know what vineyards we work with. Uh, so I would certainly say if you're going to step into an interview, come prepared. You know, learn a little bit about the organization that, you, that you're uh, potentially going to work for and, and show that you did your research. Actually, that's how I got hired in a lot of ways with, with Silver Oak. It's not the only reason, but... Right. Uh, I made it very clear that I wanted this job really, really bad when I met David Duncan. Uh, and I think, you know, uh, the uh, if you want to learn more about winemaking and grape growing, there's a lot of places to do that. You can do them online. You can go through the Vesta courses, of course, you know, learning through WSET or, or some other more wine um, 
wine appreciation or wine service, uh, you know, certification is good, but you can take viticulture and enology classes online pretty easily uh, or just read about them, you know, read, uh, read books, read, uh, read blogs, read websites, you know, learn a little bit about it. Yeah, I think getting a getting a base going of some sort, even if it's just the basic things. And you know, of course, here at the Napa Valley Wine Academy, we not only do WSET, but we even have just Wine One Hundred and One and Wine Two Hundred and One. They're not necessarily fancy certifications, um, but they're you know they they give you a, a foundation to at least when you're in the interview, you kind of have an idea. I think that like even just going around and doing tastings or. Um, visiting wineries and taking tours. That's another, you know, fun way can get a little expensive if you do it every day. Um, And you'll laugh when I say this, but if you really want to just get an idea of what it's like in a vineyard, go on YouTube and look up harvest videos or winemaking videos and watch the process. There's lots of wineries that have, you guys probably even post a few out there. Um, that's another good way just to visualize what it would be like. So you're not applying for a job that you're like, oh, heck no, I don't want to do this after the first day, right? So kind of getting an idea. But yeah, doing your homework and getting a foundation is good. Was there something else? Well, I think that certainly uh, when we're screening people for, say, harvest internships, we, we do. We definitely want to avoid that last uh, person you mentioned that shows up and doesn't quite realize the amount of physical work that is involved and then then kind of uh, says it's not really for them. So, so yeah, I, w- I think that's great advice. But what we're really looking for is really just people that are eager, passionate, and reliable. You know, yeah. those things, you're going to do great. Yeah, I think that overcomes a lot of, you know, maybe lack of experience or lack of wine knowledge. Um regardless of what the wine job is, if it's out in the vineyard or the winery, or if it's hospitality or, you know, anything to do with wine, you can overcome a lot with enthusiasm. Um, And I would, you know, I know when I used to hire salespeople, for instance, if they had a great personality and a lot of enthusiasm and a passion for wine, I can teach them the rest. You can't teach people to be excited. And so I think that that's really, really great advice. Nate, I cannot thank you enough. This has been so good. I think our audience is going to love the the episode. I hope everybody listening has learned a lot. I know you were inspiring. You make me wish I was 20 years younger and and I'm thinking I want that I want that that job where they go out in the vineyard. I like hiking, so I would be good at that. But anyway, thank you so much for your time and your expertise. I appreciate it. Thanks, Karen. I really enjoyed our discussion, and I, I hope the uh, listeners find it at least somewhat interesting and useful. But uh, if not, uh, maybe they just learned something. Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure they have. And I want to thank the audience for coming. And you know, we have a very loyal following here on the podcast, and um, people who don't even necessarily want to get in the wine industry seem to enjoy it. So um, I'm glad we touched on a lot of different topics. I really appreciate it. And for the listeners, we'll see you in the next episode. Thanks to all of you for joining. And I hope today's show has inspired you to make a career out of your passion for wine. If you'd like to have a one-on-one career coaching session with me, just use the link in the show notes for more information or to schedule an appointment. This podcast is all about helping you follow your dreams. So feel free to send us your suggestions for guests or topics through our email link that's listed in the show notes. And it means an awful lot when you share us with friends or leave a review on iTunes. 
Thanks for listening. I hope you'll join us again for our next episode.